For the last several weeks, what we've been doing is covering the witnesses to the crucifixion and resurrection, really the witnesses also to the ministry of Jesus. We started off with Peter, and uh, then we looked at John. Last week, we looked at Nicodemus. So uh, Peter and John, uh, similar, they were fishermen. Um, they were called to be disciples. They were really called at the same time uh, from their fishing business right after Jesus had ministered by the lake. Uh, Nicodemus, last week we looked at, was a, a religious leader and didn't receive an explicit call from Jesus. He actually was seeking, wanted to find out what Jesus was all about, and so he went to Jesus and had an interview by night. And I guess you could say there was a calling there, and Jesus told him, you know what, your, your religiosity is not good enough. You're going to need to start all over again. You're going to need to be born again. Or the word in Greek, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, but the word in Greek means, it's the word anothen, and it means from above. You need to be born again, born from above. Jesus said, or you can't even perceive, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So these folks were really, really looking for God to establish his kingdom on earth. And Jesus said, you're blind to the kingdom until you're reborn. And that transfers to us. I don't know how much you trust in your uh, religious upbringing. I don't know how much you trust in uh, uh, your kind of uh, religious affect and, and what you think about spiritual things and what you believe and so forth. But in the end, that message to Nicodemus is a message to all of us. Unless you're born from above, unless you're born by the Spirit, you can't perceive the kingdom of God, much less get into the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't work your way into heaven, friends. Well. I think that it's pretty clear that although Nicodemus was very respectful to Jesus and was even there at the crucifixion and assisted in Jesus' burial, that he was not, at least during this time period, a believer. And we don't hear anything else about him beyond the grave, so we don't know if he ever really became a believer in Jesus, as in a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus' resurrection, someone who is willing to call Jesus Lord. Um, this week, I want to look at a family, but we're going to focus on two people. And the family um, is the family um, of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, you are probably familiar with Lazarus. This is the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, we would say that Lazarus, perhaps we would say, was resurrected, but he was more resuscitated because Lazarus died again. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he never dies again. You're going to die, but if you have Jesus living in you, then the resurrected Christ will cause you to be raised from the dead and you will never die again. So in a sense, Jesus resuscitated Lazarus. Now, I don't mean he did it the way a paramedic would do it today. Uh, you can't be dead for long before things start going wrong in your body and it's just not possible for you to be raised. Uh, Lazarus, as we're going to see, was dead for four days or in the tomb for four days when Jesus came and raised him from the dead. It's a very, very powerful story. It's the climactic miracle in the Gospel of John. But rather than focus on that, and it, it's, it's worthy of focus, trust me, what I want to do is I want to present the three different times that we are witnesses to Mary and Martha. Lazarus, we really don't know a whole lot about him except that he was raised from the dead. But we are given some information about Martha and Mary. And as I said previously, as we examine these individuals, I want you to lay their lives alongside your life. I want you to see yourself in some of these people. I want you to recognize that these people were witnesses and they testified, or in the case of Nicodemus, someone else testified for him, right? They were witnesses who chose to follow Jesus, or in Nicodemus's case, perhaps not. But they were witnesses nonetheless. You too are a witness. Now, you didn't walk around in the first century and observe uh, Jesus, the first century Palestinian Jewish man, doing what he did then. But we received the word of God and the testimony of these witnesses. And if you have allowed the spirit of Christ to come into you, have you? Have you? If that's true, there's, there's a transformation there. There's a change there. There's something that has happened. And I just want to be honest with you. I don't want to be mean to you. But if you're a Christian and your life is really no different than people who are not Christians, you're not a Christian. I like to say this. Christian, 
the word, means little Christ. That's what it means. So if there is little in you that is like Jesus, then you're not a Christian. You're not a little Christ. And again, that's not something you work yourself into. You, you try harder. You strive to be more religious in order to obtain or attain. It's something that you receive. You trust God. You call on Jesus as Lord. You allow his spirit to come in and transform you and remake you. In fact, I, I send out a daily Bible passage uh, to all of the people that are on that group. Uh, if you're interested, you can text the word, T-H-E-W-O-R-D, to 94000. You can get a daily Bible passage from me. Or you can go to, uh, uh, it's called lifewell.flocknote.com, and you can check the boxes of any groups that you want to hear from, and uh, the uh, daily Bible is one of them. But I sent out Romans chapter 12 this morning to my group, and uh, I always hear for the past month or so, I've chosen to quote a little bit of a, a passage uh, when I send it out. And I quoted part of Romans 12, 2 this morning, right? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's what's happening. If you're paying attention right now and you're receiving the word, that word is transformative. The word of God doesn't leave God's mouth. It doesn't leave his heaven without accomplishing what he seeks for it to accomplish. He says in Isaiah 55, it's like the rain that comes down from the sky. It waters the earth so that it brings forth uh, bread for the eater and seed for the sower. And God says, so is my word that goes from, forth from my mouth. It will not fail to accomplish what I seek to have it accomplish, right? So if you're just open, if you're just paying attention, then that transformation can occur. It's not something you need to work yourself into. It's something that you need to receive. Now, I'm not telling you that you don't need to do something about it, but I will say that you'll be motivated to do something about it if the Spirit of Christ is in you. Now, I'm not trying to preach perfectionism. I'm not trying to like, you know, put a big guilt trip on you and make you feel terrible because you're not a perfect Christian. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. But you should be able to look at your life and there should be a cutting line between B.C., before Christ, and A.D., year of our Lord, the time that Christ came into your life, even if you were little, okay? So, uh, you know, we give other people's testimonies sometimes. I shared last week that uh, John gave Nicodemus' testimony. So I'm going to share a little bit, um, a very little bit of Miss Jubilee's testimony. She turned 10 today. I remember Jubilee when she was three and four and five years old, and she's like a little skeptic. No joke. She's like talking about the Trinity and saying, well, I don't know if I believe in the Trinity. I'm like, I'm shocked you even know what the word means. How old are you, right? But I have seen a change in her and saw that change begin to happen from the time she decided on her own that she was going to call on Jesus as Lord and her daddy baptized her a couple of years ago. So is she a perfect child? I'm sure her parents would tell you not. <laughs> but I've seen a change. I've been around long enough to where I've seen a lot of you come to faith in Christ. I remember people in this room. I remember people in this band in their BC days, in their AD days. None of them were terrible. Some of them a little bit on the wild side. I mean, Dean was kind of like wild. I, I remember meeting Dean at uh, Schlotzky's. He was my Schlotzky's guy. He was my Schlotzky's hookup, right? And uh, I, there used to be a Schlotzky's over here. I don't even know if you guys know that. That's a great sandwich shop, by the way. But they used to make these pizzas, and I used to get that, and Dean was my guy over there before he ever started coming to our church. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, people are just people, but you see them change over time. You see that transformation occur. Can we see that in you? Can we see that in you? You know, some of you, I don't know when you actually came to faith, but just since you started coming to our church, I've seen transformation in you. I've seen changes in you, Nicholas, right? Very positive changes in you. Now, I'm not saying you were some, you know, wild child before you started coming to LifeWell, but I'm just saying that when Jesus gets a hold of you and you start letting that word come in and you start letting that work in your mind, it causes a change. 
you are transformed. So if there is little in you that is like Christ, then you're not a little Christ, which means you're not really a Christian, but you can change that today, right now. Whether you're 10 or whether you're 29 and holding like me, right? Yes, I just celebrated the 30th anniversary of my 29th birthday. See if you can figure that out. So let's look at, uh, as I said, this is the family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But let's look at Martha and Mary. Um, we first meet them and see how Jesus was acquainted with them in Luke's gospel. And this is chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, verse 38. Now, as they, that is Jesus and the disciples, were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So let's observe that. This is Martha's house. Doesn't say anything about her husband. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, it was common for men to die younger here. Uh, Jesus' stepfather, we'll call him Joseph, was apparently already, uh, had already passed away by the time Jesus entered his ministry. We hear about Joseph, he's prominent in the birth narrative. We hear nothing about Joseph during Jesus' life. We're, we don't hear anything about husbands for Martha or Mary, right? Mary is the homeowner. She is presumably uh, the, the elder of the two sisters, uh, most commentators believe, and I would say that that's probably accurate. And this is her house. And she said, it says that she welcomed him into her home. We're told by the Lord Jesus, in fact, in this very chapter of Luke uh, chapter 10, that as the disciples are going from place to place, they're to allow people to offer them hospitality and they're not to move from home to home. So when you're a preacher of the gospel, the apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says, you should receive your living from the gospel. You should be able to allow people to take care of you. That doesn't mean they do stuff for you, but it means that they're willing to be gracious. And in this case, offer Jesus and the disciples a place to stay and something to eat. Hospitality is very, very important to this day in the Middle East, far more important than hospitality is here. She had a sister called Mary. So Martha, this is her house. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Now, I want you to get that image in your mind. Back then, they didn't sit at a table that was over the top of them with chairs that scooted under the table like we do, right? We sit at a table. Well, I don't know if you do. Some of you just like sit at the TV and like drag food across you or whatever. Okay, I do. But... <laughs> In any event, if we're going to have a meal together, and that's another thing that was very important to these people in the ancient world is the community meal, the communal meal. Um, if you're going to have a meal together, then you're going to sit around a table and you're going to pay attention to each other as much as the food. Okay. But back then they reclined at table. So the table was a little bit off of the ground and there were mats laid around the table and their feet would kick away from the table behind them and they would lean on an elbow and reach over and eat like that. So they were literally, in a certain sense, they were kind of on top of each other. And this is why uh, we see these uh, paintings of the Last Supper and you know they're all seated. It looks like they're seated in chairs. The very famous one uh, by Leonardo da Vinci has John leaning over and uh, you know, it says that, that John leaned on Jesus' chest at the, at the Last Supper. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that uh, John was very, very, uh, well, he was the beloved disciple. That's what he called himself. He was very close to Jesus. He was probably Jesus' closest friend on earth. And uh, our friend Felix did a masterful job of presenting a monologue along those lines last week that an incredible, incredible dramatic writer wrote. Um, I wrote it. I'm, but they're, they're leaning against the table like this, so it would be easy, Jesus is leaning here, John is leaning here, for John to literally lean back and say Jesus and talk to him here. So what we find here is that Mary is, it says, she is seated at the Lord's feet. So she's not even up to the table, she's listening but she's very close to Jesus. Now, there is a, um, a symbol of being sitting at the feet of a teacher, right? 
the teacher is elevated to some degree even today. Why am I s standing on the stage today? So that I can see you all and you, can, you all can see me. Um, on on uh, Wednesday night, I bring a table down and I'm seated behind the table, but we have very few people in the room. But there is this idea of sitting at the feet of a particular rabbi, which means that you're paying attention to that uh, rabbi's teaching. And so this is symbolic, but it's also literal. She is back there at Jesus' feet. And so it's a very, very humble position. She hasn't scooted up and gotten right next to Jesus. It would be inappropriate for a woman to do that uh, for a man. Um, that would be inappropriate today, uh, unless you're the, the wife. But nonetheless, she's seated at his feet. She's as close as she dares get. And she is in a very, very humble position. And it says that she's there for a reason, and that is to listen to his word. Verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. <laughs> That's audacious, isn't it? So you invite someone into your home and then you tell that someone to tell my sister to help me. I'm working hard here, Lord, and she's just laying around, basically. Well, you know, there are people that do that. There are people that might have religious reasons or other reasons to be lazy. I've been affiliated with people for years, and there are people that are naturally workers. They, they're, they're about it, man. You don't have to tell them a second time. They're gonna get up and they're gonna get the job done. And there are people that seem to have a work allergy, we'll call it. <laughs> They just, anytime there's work to be done, they are absent. They just, uh, you know, it's, I'm going to tell you, this, this isn't a part of this passage. Uh, laziness is debilitating. It's as debilitating as alcoholism or drug addiction. It's debilitating. It causes poverty. So I reposted a, a, a PragerU meme the other day. And uh, he quotes several statistics that basically said, if you wait until you're beyond the age of 21 before you get married, if you make sure that you hold a full-time job, and if you finish high school or the equivalent, then the overwhelming majority of people wait till you're older than 21 to get married, finish your high school diploma or equivalent, and hold a full-time job. The overwhelming majority of those people are not in poverty. But if you flip the script and those three things are not accurate, then the overwhelming majority of those people are in poverty. Well, let's concentrate on two things there. Number one, if you finish high school or your high school equivalent, it's going to open up more doors for you to get a better job, right? And number two, if you're a worker, and I've told this to people for years. In fact, uh, you, you've helped me move a couple of times, Felix, and I've told you this, I think. Um, Somebody that works as hard as you is never gonna be hurting for money. You're just not. Now, you can overspend and you know do crazy things, but if you're willing to work, you're not gonna hurt for money. There's just a lot of people out there that don't wanna work. They want a socialist state because they want other people to work and give them money, right? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, if you have some form of disability or something like that, that actually prohibits you from doing something. But nonetheless, um, Martha was a worker. She was a hard worker. In fact, I would say the, the number one characteristic for Martha is the word duty. There are people like Martha, there are people like Martha in this room. They're duty-oriented people. You don't have to tell them a second time to do something. In fact, oftentimes they feel it their duty to take care of details, to do things that they simply see need to be done. What kind of person are you? So here we are in church, okay? If you walked out into our lobby and you saw a spill on the floor, what would you do? Walk by it? Come and tell me or Pastor Craig? Or would you grab some paper towels and clean it up? See, there's a whole lot of people in this room that would just grab the paper towels and clean it up. That duty is something that is very important. And this is every bit as much a part of dedication as what I'm about to show you that Jesus complimented Mary for. We do need to pursue our duty. So 
Jesus is at Martha's home. Somebody's got to fix the food, right? So uh, a lot of you folks go over to um, Craig and Rachel's on um, Sundays and you go to their home group. There's a whole lot of preparation going on there. So yesterday, uh, there was a wonderful, another wonderful young man in our church, Johari, uh, just turned 11, I think on the 17th, and they had a birthday party for him here. Lots of preparation. And I saw a number of ladies that were here early making all those preparations. Did you have to do that? Well, I mean, there was one woman here whose child that is, Miss Aquina, everybody else was helping out. So it's obvious that a lot of us understand the Martha type of duty the Martha type of dedication. We're action-oriented people. But there can be the perception that if somebody is not doing their duty at a particular point in time or not helping, that somehow they are falling short, that they are lazy. And that was what Martha was saying here. In fact, she was so frustrated. I think that this is rather arrogant on her part, to be honest with you. And almost borderline disrespectful. Now, I like Martha quite a bit, right? And in fact, I probably identify with her more than I identify with Mary. But nonetheless, uh, she was obviously very frustrated and just, tell my sister to help me. Now, Jesus could have turned to her and, you know, parents in this room, this is probably what you'd be tempted to do. Mary, you can come and listen to Jesus later. Why don't you go help your sister? She's obviously frustrated right now and needs help. But that's not what Jesus said. Because, see, many times we have plans and those plans don't go the way we want them to go. And so we're going to work overtime to make sure we fix it. I'm all about that. This morning, uh, I, you know, our, our video went awry and I suspect I know why now. And this is classic stuff that I do in this church all the time. I work really hard at something, I test it beforehand, and come go time, nope. This mic, I tested it last week after we did, and as soon as I step up here, you saw what happened. This happens all the time, right? There's something in me that wants to fix it right now. So I'm gonna tell you this, if you're interested in seeing that video, I am gonna play it after the service. I have another way to do it, and I will, I'll play it for you. You don't have to stay, but I'll, I'll play it for you. I know how, because it's bothering me right now, right? <laughs> but we wanna fix it, but sometimes we don't ask whether we should. You know, God may be trying to, to direct you with providence when something goes wrong. Maybe it's a way to steer you away from something and steer you into something else. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can count on the fact that there are no circumstances that don't come through Almighty God first, right? There, there, there is no luck in the kingdom. There is providence. And that means it is a circumstance or sometimes people would say, oh, that's a coincidence. Well, providence is a coincidence that is directed by God. And I think that you and I need to realize that providence is operating in our life all the time. If you're a believer, if you believe in Jesus, and this is really good news if you're paying attention, nothing can truly go wrong. That's Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How many things? All. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according, all things. When you establish that, then you could start backing away from some of these circumstances that aren't working out. So in this situation, what we find is that um, Martha had plans. She had the meal preparation going and it was going too slowly because Jesus was teaching and Mary was listening to Jesus. Maybe Martha should have stopped, slowed down and recognized that there was something for her to hear as well. Listen to what Jesus said. But the Lord answered, that is he answered Martha and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken from her." Wow. So see, all this stuff we've got going on in here, videos and lights, and uh, it's 
not that important. What's important is that you worship. What's important is that you receive the word. So Easter Sunday morning, we'll be out there on the square. I mean, weather permitting. If the weather doesn't permit, we'll be back in here. But we'll be out there on the square at sunrise, seven o'clock. We're not going to drag a bunch of sound equipment out there, right? We're not going to, you know, put on a laser show or something for you. We're just going to go out there for about an hour and we're going to worship. And I've said this for years. I love all the preparation that our band goes through in order to make things sound good. And, you know, all of the amplifiers and, and you know, microphones, everything that we've got up here. But as far as I'm concerned, I can have a guitar player and a singer. And as long as they're worshiping, you and I can worship. Amen? We had a time in this church where we had no musicians. We had four girls that sang a cappella. And then we've had times in this church, like this extended period of time for the last decade and a half, where we have a full band. See, the, the point is not that you have all these details in line. The point is that you're really, really worshiping. And apparently, Mary was really, really paying attention to Jesus. So my question is, I, I would doubt that you come to this church because we have cool videos or cool drama. You might come because you like the music, but hopefully you recognize that the music is designed to lead you into the presence of God. So it's not like a nightclub or something or a Sunday day club, whatever you would call it. It's, there's a purpose for this, and that's to put you in the presence of God. So hopefully you come here to worship and you come here to receive the word. Now, there are churches that have so much going on, and I'm not going to mention names, but there are churches that have, you know, I mean, it's like light show and just, it's, it's like going to a, a very, very high dollar rock concert, basically. And, you know, there might be that tendency for people that go to those churches to go for the entertainment value. I don't think you're coming here for that. Um, there are preachers that are more entertaining, they're funnier, uh, perhaps more engaging than me. And, you know, the, there could be a temptation to, to go and, and to sit in front of someone like that. But in the long run, we're here to be like Mary. But that doesn't mean we put behind the duty of a Martha. So I said that Martha, I think the, the word for her character is duty. I think the word for uh, Mary's character is devotion. And both of them were dedicated, right? So um, how many of you in this room have ever heard of or read the book, The, the Five Love Languages? Okay, a few of you. So apparently, uh, this fellow has written this book that says there are different ways that people receive love or perceive what love is. I'm going to, to say there are different ways that people express their dedication. So if you look at human personality, now this isn't the Bible, this is something that comes from uh, contemporary psychology, but I think that it bears itself out. If you look at human personality, you are a person. And a person is comprised of three domains. The cognitive domain, that's your thinking, your intellect. The affective domain, now that's the word affect with an A, affect, which means your emotions, your feelings. And the behavioral domain. You are a thinking, feeling, doing person, amen? But it is likely that you are more emphatic, more interested in the intellectual or the emotional or the active, right? So those of you that just, you like to go out and you like to stay active, constantly doing something, you wish we would do a mission trip every other week, you'd be up here cleaning the church, you don't care what it is, you like to do, 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 do. Well, that's, you're oriented toward the behavioral domain. People that want to study the word and think about it and ponder it and, and work through all of these things, uh, those are people that are oriented toward the cognitive domain. There are churches that are oriented toward these domains as well. So you have a lot of Baptist churches that are very behaviorally oriented, you know, building projects and, you know, all of these different sorts of things that they're doing. And then there are Bible churches, for example, that are more oriented toward the cognitive domain, right? They're, they're more focused on studying and notebooks and, and study Bibles and going through and, you know, taking reams of notes, right? Uh, 
John MacArthur's church in California is very oriented toward the cognitive. This guy has written commentaries, right? And he's the pastor of this church, been the pastor there for 50 years, but not everybody's going to thrive in that environment. And then there are churches that you go to and they have an hour of musical worship, right? They got people with tambourines. They got people with streamers and they're running around the room and whatever. And some of you would be like, yeah, that's not for me. I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. But now stylistically, somebody can be oriented. And by the way, that's that's someone who's oriented toward the affective with an A domain. Right. Oriented toward feeling. But there are different ways of expressing feelings. And so not everybody would be um, comfortable with that sort of expression. But you still may be oriented more toward the affective domain. The ideal, friends, is that we balance ourselves out. And the beauty of a community is that you should have people that are oriented toward these different areas in personality. And we all come together and we balance each other out and we challenge each other and encourage each other in these areas. So Mary and Martha are really a good team, right? Those of you that are married, one uh, partner may be more oriented toward action. One partner may be more oriented toward cognition. One partner may be more oriented toward uh, feeling, right? and intuition and so forth. And the other partner is more oriented toward, well, let's, let's use reason, let's think through this. It's not an either or. This isn't binary, it's not ones and zeros here. This is a both and situation. Like we need to enjoy the company of these other people. So Jesus is not telling Mar Mar Martha, excuse me, um, we don't need you to prepare. We don't need any food today. We're just gonna fast. And everybody's gonna sit here and listen to me teach. He's saying, no, we're not going to take this away from Mary. Mary's doing what she should do. Jesus didn't even say, Martha, you should be sitting down here too, and you're not. He didn't say that. He simply affirmed Mary's position or situation. Okay. Um, so in this context, I think Mary, the, uh, the devoted, could be construed as someone who is more effective, right? More feeling oriented, or perhaps even more cognitive. She may have been thinking through those things and thinking deeply. And certainly Martha can be seen as the behavioral person, the dutiful person. Well, let's switch over to another story. And uh, this is uh, something that I'm not gonna get into detail. My focus today is on the personality of these witnesses. But this brings out the personality of these witnesses. So I'm gonna tell a bit of this story and then I'm gonna read a bit of it. This is the story of Martha and Mary's brother, Lazarus, um, whose name probably, whose formal name was probably Eleazar. Lazarus was another form of Eleazar. Eleazar means the Lord helps or God helps, right? And that is appropriate here because Lazarus got sick Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were a family who were also friends of Jesus. And so they believed they could call on Jesus and they believed that he was the Messiah. And we'll see that in a moment. And they believed that he could help in this situation. So uh, they sent word to Jesus who was uh, miles away at this point. And they said, our brother Lazarus is sick. We need you to come and help. Jesus expressly told his disciples, we're not going to go right now because he knew that God had a plan. Well, some of the disciples assumed that Jesus didn't want to go back to Jerusalem because um, they had sought the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had sought to execute Jesus the last time he was in Jerusalem. So they thought Jesus was just playing it safe. Now, Jesus had healed people from a distance before. There are a number of occasions where people come. In fact, a Roman soldier was, was uh, notorious for this, a Roman centurion who had a servant that was sick. He sent to Jesus and Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion said, no, you don't need to do that. Just give the word. And the centurion said, I know how it works. I'm a man under authority and there are people under authority, uh, under my authority. And I say one go when he goes. I say another come and he comes. Just say the word. And Jesus said, wow. I have not seen such faith even in Israel. And he said, go your way. Your servant is healed. On his way back, that Roman centurion was encountered by other servants. And they said, hey, your servant's well. And he said, what 
time was it when he got well? It was the exact time when Jesus said, go, your servant is well. So the reality is it is, it is comforting to have someone come and be with you in various instances and circumstances. But in order for God to work, you just want to get the agreement of someone else to pray for you. So I do that all the time. People make requests on Facebook and I say, sure, I'm gonna pray for you, but more than that, I'm gonna believe for you because I want things to get better for you. So what I'm saying is Jesus could have healed Lazarus from the place he was, that he was but he didn't. There was a purpose behind it. So he waited longer, several extra days, and then he went. Well, by that time, by the time Jesus finally showed up uh, in the outskirts or the environs of this little town called Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem, Lazarus had already died and they'd already put him in the tomb. And he'd been in the tomb for four days. So what he encountered when he had arrived was a group of people who had no hope. Their only hope was that Jesus could come and heal Lazarus, and Jesus didn't come. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever prayed for something, and God just didn't seem to be there? Have you ever prayed for something, and it seems that the opposite happened? Well, that was certainly the case here. They wanted, they prayed, they, they made, their, they made their, their appeal to Jesus in person. And Jesus waited. God does this sometimes in your life, friend. You and I need to realize it. And it's a test. It's always a test. It's a test of trust. If things don't go the way you want them to go, if things seem to be going in a harmful or hurtful direction, do you automatically point the finger at God and say, God, what are you doing? Or why aren't you paying attention? That was the case with both of these women. They didn't understand. They wanted to understand, but they did not understand. Now I wanna show you, here is Martha the dutiful, but I wanna show you that she likely had more faith than her sister. So uh, Jesus shows up in the environs of Bethany. Martha therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Isn't that interesting? You can see that, can't you, with a, a more emotionally oriented person? She's upset. She's discouraged. She's perhaps in despair. Maybe she's angry. And she does not go out to see Jesus. She knows he's coming. But this is devout Mary. Where is she? No, it's dutiful Martha that comes out and talks to Jesus. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this can sound like an accusation, but it's a point of fact. Jesus could have healed him. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's a powerful statement. That's a faith statement. Her brother's been dead for four days, and she says, even now, I know that what you ask of God, God will give you. Wow. This is a faith-oriented woman. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So he's trying to give her hope. And she thinks he's talking theology. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what he said to Martha. But I'm saying it to you. Do you believe this? This is what gives us the strength to overcome crushing grief when someone that we love dies. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, amen? amen. Whoever lives and believes in him will never truly die. That's a very, very powerful statement. Um, he asked Martha, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. This is powerful faith. The only other person who's made this confession is Peter. And now Martha makes this confession. I believe you are the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who has come into the world. 
When she said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here is calling for you. <laughs> Want to hear something interesting? There's nothing in the text that said that Jesus was calling for her. Mary just went to her sister and wanted to comfort. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't call uh, for her, but I'm saying that Martha had to push her sister out of this despair, this pit of despair, lift her out of that pit of despair, leverage her up from her grief to get her to go out to Jesus, all right? So let's look at the similarities and the differences and the approach of these two women to Jesus. So dutiful uh, Martha was believing Martha. Here comes Mary. And when she heard it, that's when Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. So he's still in the environs of Bethany. He hasn't come into the village yet. Then the Jews who were with her, these would have been mourners that would have been mourning with her. I've told you before, mourning was a very, very important part of Jewish culture. There were actually professional mourners that would come to a funeral and cry so that your loved one would receive more honor. We don't know if these were professional mourners, but there were a lot of mourners who were around Mary. I want you to notice when Martha left to talk to Jesus, the mourners didn't go with Martha, did they? They stayed with the woman who was dealing with, seemed to be dealing with more grief. Now, let me say this just in passing. I've done a lot of funerals in my time. There are those of you in this room, you've lost people. And you've noticed in your life and in the lives of others that people grieve differently. Some people weep openly and some people bottle up their emotions. Some people seem to overcome their grief more quickly than others, but that's not necessarily the case. People grieve differently. And when I conduct a funeral, I always encourage people to allow themselves to grieve, to not put themselves in a position where other people are determining how long it's going to take for them to go through this grieving process. Grieving is a process. It takes time. You need to allow the Lord to comfort you and you need to give yourself time. Martha was a doer and a thinker as well. So what did she do? She went out to Jesus. She said, Jesus, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died, but I know you can do something about it. Mary, the devoted, was still all caught up in her emotions. She was all up in her fields, as they might say today. And she couldn't get up off that couch. She couldn't bear to go up. But as soon as the mourners saw her get up, boy, they followed her. They didn't follow Martha, but they followed her. People follow emotion today about it also. All right. When she heard it, that is when Mary heard Martha tell her that the teacher is calling for you. She got up quickly and was coming to him. Jesus is on the outside, verse 31. Then the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and what did she do? She fell at his feet. This is devoted, this is devout Mary, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I believe that this statement is emotionally loaded. And I think that there's some accusation here as well. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Because of how Jesus responded. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, that's translating a difficult Greek term. There are some translations that say Jesus was angry here. Wow. What would he be angry about? Would he be angry at Mary for grieving? No, he would be angry over their unbelief. Jesus was consistently bothered by human unbelief. No matter how many signs he showed them that pointed to the reality that he was the only begotten son of God, people still refused to believe. You know, people are like this today. They have a, what have you done for me lately, God, attitude. Hey, God, what have you done for me lately? No, I know you did that yesterday, and I, you did that last week, and you've given me everything that I've received today. But you know, what have you done for me lately? And God's saying, you know what? I'm going to wait until you give me gratitude for what I've already done before I work next. That's a possibility, right? So 
I think that there is emotion behind this that also had some accusation and Jesus was hurt by it. He was perhaps even angered by it. But Jesus didn't give up on her. Say, you know what? I have dealt with you people and dealt with you people. I'm going my way. Let your brother stay dead. No, he knew what, what God was going to do. So he said, where have you laid him? Oh, they said to him, Lord, come and see, because they think Jesus wants to enter into the grief. They, they think Jesus wants to be a part of their grieving process. And so he wants to go to the tomb so that they can all cry together, right? When they said, come and see, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. How many of you know the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. What is it? Jesus wept. Why did he cry? He was touched by death. He was moved by death. But he was also moved by their unbelief. He was moved by their unwillingness to see that God is still loving and God is still good. You see, when we're hurting, we are like toddlers screaming, pounding. We're upset. We're angry. Friends, God is a person. He's not a human, but he's a person. And God can be hurt too. Now, there are theologians that don't believe that. But I think when we see Jesus and his response and we realize that Jesus is God come in the flesh and Jesus weeps and Jesus gets angry. Yes, God gets angry. Yes, God weeps. Yes, God is affected with our infirmities. Amen. When you realize that, you can have a whole lot closer relationship with this God. Right. So he weeps. The Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them, continuing the accusation, said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So there's the accusation again. So Jesus again being deeply moved within, and this is where the anger part may be, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was, was lying against it. So this is not unlike the tomb that Jesus would be laid in just a couple of weeks later. Jesus said, remove the stone. Now Martha, ever practical, right? She's dutiful but she's very practical. She says, Martha, the sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. There's a reality. When life is not in the body, the body decomposes. And that's why there is, uh, there was a, a, a plan to, to wrap the body in burial cloths and to soak them in spices and so forth, right? That's why in our day, uh, People are embalmed. This is a, there's an effort to keep this decay from creeping in and ruining the memory of those who would see their deceased for one of the last times. Lord, by this time there'll be a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? She didn't want her brother to be dishonored. See, I don't think that Mary disbelieved that Jesus could do something. I think that she wanted perhaps Jesus to do something with the stone rolled against there so that her brother would not be dishonored. But Jesus said, no, this is what I've told you to do. Well, you know what? Again, Martha proves that she's a believer, right? She's, she's rational. You know, ladies, I know a lot of times uh, we have a tendency to peg women as being overly emotional and men to be more intelligent or intellectual or whatever. That's just simply not true. In fact, if you want to know uh, something that's a reality, um, when I was in college, I took logic. And uh, the professor that taught my logic class, Dr. Kilgore, actually wrote the book. And I remember Professor Kilgore saying, women always did better in his class than men. What I think ladies, is that many of you trust your feelings more than you trust reason. It has nothing to do with a, uh, a, a di different uh, level of reasoning. It has to do with what you decide you're going to trust or who you decide you're going to trust. Men have a tendency to trust reason, but to trust their power, their strength, their ability to do something about it. Here, move out of the way. I'm going to do this. Okay. That's just kind of the way we are. That's that personality coming through again. But I love Martha. I'm, again, I identify more with Martha, okay? Because she's the one in charge. She's the elder sister, and she's the one that says, go ahead and roll away the stone. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This is amazing. He's been dead four days. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Now, the last story I'll just very quickly relate to you as I conclude. It's in the next chapter. In the next chapter, Jesus is at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus is sitting there eating with them. And Mary, who previously, when we first met her, had sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him teach, now takes a very expensive jar of perfume that the text tells us was probably worth about a year's wages. Well, I don't know how much you make in a year, right? How much do you make? 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars? That's an expensive bottle of perfume. Okay, even, you know, if you're just starting out in, in your career and you're only making twenty five or thirty thousand dollars a year, that's an expensive bottle of perfume. She just they didn't uncork it. Basically, it was used for this sort of thing. It was used for, uh, you know, a, a burial in part, and it would have had a neck on it that you actually had to break that was made of glass. You broke it off like an ampule. And then she poured it on Jesus feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. Okay, so I'll be honest, that's just kind of weird to me, but nonetheless, it was definitely the ultimate expression of devotion. It was extravagant worship. She was giving the best that she had to Jesus. She didn't care what anybody else thought. She was deeply grateful. She loved Jesus before he raised Lazarus. Imagine how she felt now. So I don't know who you more identify with, Mary, or Martha, or maybe Lazarus. Maybe you need a resurrection today. But the reality is Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, amen? And he is deserving of our commitment, our dedication, our devotion, and all of our